Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. My hope is that before we're done this morning, you will feel a refreshing wind blowing through this text, because as I read it, Paul has a really positive and happy angle on personal evangelism in these several verses. If you were listening carefully now to the text, it falls, doesn't it, into two halves. The first three verses, verses 2 through uh, 4, 2, 3, and 4, are what you might call our involvement indirectly in somebody else's evangelism through prayer. And the second half of the text, verses 5 and 6, would be perhaps summed up as our direct involvement ourselves as we rub shoulders with unbelievers. So I want to break it down into those two halves and deal with the two halves one at a time. Let's look at verses 2 through Four, first of all. Now, if you've been around Bethlehem a little while, you might have picked up that one of my favorite analogies of prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. And I like to contrast the wartime walkie-talkie of prayer with the domestic intercom. And what I like to say is one of the reasons that prayer malfunctions is because people take a wartime walkie-talkie and try to turn it into a domestic intercom in which they ring up the butler to please bring another pillow to the den. Prayer was designed for the battlefield as a wartime walkie-talkie not to increase the pad of the saints through a domestic intercom. Now, keep that image in your mind as I read these verses again, and then I want to paint a picture for you of the situation it looks to me like Paul is in. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray for us also that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear as I ought to speak. Now, here's one way to picture what's going on here. Paul, Epaphras, Luke, Timothy, Aristarchus, that's the team mentioned in this book in other verses. Kind of stormtroopers, you could picture them as on the front lines. They have an assignment to penetrate the enemy line of Satan and to uh, take captive for God souls who are being blinded and held by Satan. They attempt to spearhead a breach through the enemy line, and they hit a massive counterforce. The result, at least two of them, Aristarchus and Paul, 
are in a prison camp. It looks as though the enemy has gotten a significant tactical victory. But Paul, in the camp, manages to scratch a note and smuggle it out of the camp to the soldiers who are not at this point on the front line. They're called Colossians, back up country in the high ground. And the note at this point simply says, use walkie-talkie. Call the commander, have him fire a missile, gives the coordinates, and tell him to blow the door off of this prison. And open a door for the word of God to go forward behind those lines and to rescue those people that we were after when we got waylaid here in this prison. Now, the point so far is this. We're all soldiers, and we're all on the battlefield. Some of us are in different places on the battlefield, and some penetrating a front line can get into grave difficulty. And the job of the rest of the soldiers is to use the walkie-talkie of prayer to call in air cover and firepower for those stormtroopers. We are crucial in evangelism indirectly through prayer. So here is what the, the text, verses 2 to 4, answers for us indirect supporters. It answers how to pray and what to pray. It gives three answers to each of those questions. Let's look at them briefly. First of all, how to pray. Verse 2, the first way is persistently. Verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, or your version might say, devote yourselves to prayer. Be persistent, continuous, devoted. Here's a way to illustrate this. Prayer is not like these new uh, telephones that you can buy that don't have any cords. Our sons won one of these telephones by selling a lot of magazines. So we now have one of these Tweety Bird telephones, and uh, you can just pull the little aerial up, flick it on, and walk around the house, talking, go out in the yard. Now, prayer is not like these telephones, because as soon as you take that telephone off the hook and start using it, it the power runs out of it. It starts getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and if you keep on using it, it's useless. You've got to stop using it. You've got to hang it up in order for it to get power again. Prayer is exactly the opposite. If you hang prayer up on the wall of your bedroom when you leave in the morning, it will be dead when you come home at night, very likely. But the best way to keep prayer powerful is to hook it like i got this little doohickey right on me here. See, that's hooked up to this. You just keep it hooked on your belt and make sure it stays on. I gotta flick this thing off between services or I've got no juice. The battery runs out. Prayer is just the opposite. You've gotta keep it on because it gets more and more and more powerful the more you use it. I think that's what's meant by be persistent in prayer. It doesn't run out of juice. It's more and more effective as you devote yourself to it and continue 
in it. So when you're done in the morning, suppose you spend five minutes or 10 or 20 or 30 minutes in prayer in the morning. Don't hang it up. Hang it on right here and don't flick it off. Flick it on. So there's a little red light showing and you can get beeps and little tweety sounds during the day from God and he can just listen to you anytime you want to pick it up. Second way to pray after persistently is watchfully. You see that in verse two? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Now, why do we need to be watchful and what does that mean? Satan, who is the enemy that we're against and who is holding people bondage, knows how dangerous this walkie-talkie is to his purposes. And so he will try to jam the airwaves so you can't get through. He'll try to steal the unit so that you can't use it. And he'll try to put you to sleep with some drug while you're talking on it. Now, how does he do those three things? He He's the prince of the power of the air. Picture him now. He's just everywhere, as it were. At least his influence is everywhere. And uh, our airways got to get to God through this walkie-talkie of prayer. And it's as though he can jam the airwaves by filling our atmosphere with an incredible number of non-essential things. So that the atmosphere over our brain is so cluttered with insignificant and sometimes very worldly things that our little effort to send our signal up just goes click and doesn't even get through. And he's really good at cluttering your brain with non-essential airwaves that jam his or your desires to get through. How does he steal the unit? He steals the unit by tricking you into thinking it's broken so that you lay it down and walk away from it. A lot of ways. If you were here two Sunday nights ago when Steve Fuller taught, that's some of the clearest teaching we've ever had on the trickery of Satan when it comes to prayer. In tricking us into thinking this thing is malfunctioning, therefore it's not worth it. I will leave it here and go off to work and not pray without ceasing, not walk in a spirit of prayer. And Satan just picks it up and says, wow, another one. And the third way... Namely, causing us to go to sleep with some drug as we talk. There are a lot of ways he does this. Let me tell you the most common way that he does this. Satan puts you to sleep in prayer most commonly by tricking you into staying up too late the night before. Now, I think this is real serious business here, and I'm preaching to myself mainly. God designed you to need a certain amount of sleep. Most people are about the same. You might be a little different. If you don't get that amount of sleep, you get irritable, and that's a sin, and therefore not getting enough sleep is giving a foothold to the devil. It leads to depression. It leads to... Falling asleep during prayer. So when you start to fall asleep during prayer, and you say, oh, got to fight the fight here. Look, that fight was lost the night before. And the problem is, we don't 
see the fight the night before. We don't recognize that when it's time to go to bed, in order to get God's prescribed amount of sleep, we don't realize Satan is the one who's tricking us to watch another TV program. Satan is the one who's keeping us reading the book. Satan is the one who keeps us in the newspaper and the magazine. Satan is the one who keeps us out in the yard poking around or whatever. Because Satan knows if I can cut it back to six or five or four hours, I'll wreck their day. I'll wreck their day and make them useless for God. And I will put them to sleep during prayer. Vigilance or watchfulness is the only answer that I know of. That is, when the temptation comes to fight back with an awareness of what God has called you to do. Now, I, I don't know the last or final answer to why God designed human beings to be unconscious one-third of their life. That's a great puzzle to me. But he did. I think it has to do with wanting to teach us that we are not God. I think sleep is the most humbling experience that anybody ever has. If there is any point in your life where you are utterly childlike and helpless, it's when you're unconscious in bed at night. And God designed you to go unconscious about a third of your life. Probably more than a third if you count how much you slept when you were a baby or a child. You just got to own up to that and stop trying to be God. I do anyway. The third way we are to pray besides persistently and watchfully is thankfully. Continue steadfastly in prayer, it says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, in case the wartime analogy makes you jittery, Suppose this wartime talk that I'm using causes you to think in terms of, oh, it just means you're biting your nails and your heart is thumping and your hands are sweating. This is an awful view of the Christian life. Well, that would be an awful view of the Christian life. So this word is added to get rid of that, that image. If that's what wartime signifies to you rather than the thrill of conquest, then uh, Thanksgiving is added here to mellow things out a little bit. We ought, as we call in the headquarters to guide us through the minefields of temptation and to uh, give us the firepower we need and to blast doors off the hinges in our lives, we ought to mingle with all of our requests sentences like this. The missile hit right on target, sir. Thank you. The door was blown off its hinges, sir. Thank you. We're heading out in full force, sir. Thank you. The arm of Aristarchus has been healed, her, sir. Thank you. We're coming in, sir, with 20 captives. Thank you. You see, the battle belongs to the Lord. All the crucial engagements with Satan in the wilderness... In Gethsemane, on the cross, at the empty tomb, every one of them were triumphantly won by Jesus Christ. We do not fight one single battle with the mindset that we are going to be losers in the end. 
we fight all of our battles knowing that in Jesus Christ we will win and therefore gratitude ought to ring through this walkie-talkie all the time. If it doesn't, something will malfunction in the walkie-talkie. It has this little sensor in there that begins to click when there's not enough gratitude going through. That's the answer to the question, how to pray as supporters of stormtroopers. Now the question, what do you pray? And there are three answers to this in these two verses, three verses, whatever. First, pray for the stormtroopers. Verse three, pray for us also. Now, who is us? Well, I read through the book to just to pick up who the us is. It's Paul, it's Timothy, it's Aristarchus, it's Epaphras, it's Luke. And, uh, did I leave anybody out? Epaphras, Aristarchus, Luke, Timothy, Paul. That's the stormtroopers, the team that's out there trying to penetrate the lines of Satan. Now, all of us are soldiers. I said that earlier. But the battlefield has different dispositions. Doesn't Ephesians say he gave to some, or he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists. Now, I'm calling those stormtroopers at this point. All of us are soldiers. All of us have weapons, and all of us engage in warfare with the devil and are attempting to win hearts for God. But there are some who are strategically placed and vocationally full-time are on the front lines in a different way. And the point here is... Pray for them. All of you should have a missionary or two or three or four or evangelist or somebody in full-time work that you know about that you pray for earnestly. You get on the walkie-talkie in the morning and you get out that prayer letter and you call in firepower for them. And you reckon with the Holy Spirit that he might bring to your mind some special need that they have that you would pray in to their frontline place of work. Second thing we're to pray for is open doors or gospel opportunities. Verse 3, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, Paul knows that there's a difference between ordinary opportunities to witness and extraordinary open doors. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, a door was opened to me in the Lord. So what we're supposed to pray for these stormtroopers whether they're in Minneapolis or Guinea or the Philippines or China, is God send a missile and may it land so strategically that it blows the door off the hinges of hell so that Paul and the stormtroopers can go in and rescue captives out of Satan's clutches and blinding might. That's the way to pray for the stormtroopers. And the third thing to pray is that the mystery of Christ would be made plain in those open doors. Verse three, second half, declare the mystery to declare the mystery of the of Christ 
on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear as I ought to speak. Put these two unusual words beside each other. Mystery and clear. They fit. Mystery and clear. So here's my definition of evangelism. Evangelism is making the mystery clear. Making the mystery clear. You see, the word mystery in English might trip us up. It doesn't mean obscure or tangled or confusing or a tricky riddle. You, you kind of use it like my sons come to me. Have you heard this riddle, Daddy? And they try to trip me with it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not an attempt to trick people or confuse people or keep them in the dark. The reason the gospel is called a mystery is because nobody would have ever thought of it if Christ hadn't revealed it. That the Son of God, deity, should take on human flesh and live a life of love and poverty. That he should die for sinners while himself being sinless. That he should rise from the dead and reign at God's right hand. That godless and and ungodly people like you and me should be acquitted and accepted for faith alone. That we should be granted the Holy Spirit to seal us to the day of redemption. That Jew and Gentile and red and yellow and black and white should be reconciled in one body to God through the Spirit is something nobody would have ever thought of in all the universe had not God designed it, decreed it, effected it and revealed it and proclaimed it through his stormtroopers. And so the thing you pray for is first for the stormtroopers, second for the door to be blown off the hinges of resistance, and third that in that open door this glorious mystery called the gospel would be made crystal clear. You see, we live in a city where the gospel is on the radio, it's on television, it's in books, and 80% of the people in this city are Lutheran or Catholic. But it's so confused. It's so half understood. It's so fuzzy and hazy. What is neat is, is, is something that can just blow the fog out of people's minds with some crystal clear statements about the mystery of the gospel. Well, that's our task in supporting the front line storm troopers. Now let's go to the last two verses more briefly and talk about what perhaps may be emotionally more urgent for us, though I hope they're both urgent, namely, well, what am I supposed to do when I rub shoulders with unbelievers? I mean, all right, I support missions and, uh, and church and parachurch ministries in prayer. I get on my walkie-talkie every day and call in firepower. But now, here I am. I'm a soldier, too. And I go to work. I'm out there in the real world. I bump up against unbelievers every day. We talk. What am I supposed to do? Now, these two verses are written to answer that question. And they give, as I said at the beginning, a refreshing Answer, I think. Let me read them with you. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. 
Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. The question this text is posing is, how do you uh, redeem the time or make the most of time or opportunities? Literally, it's how do you buy up opportunities for God when you're rubbing shoulders with unbelievers? You see that that phrase purchasing or buying up or redeeming or making the most of the opportunity? This is a thrilling way to view life, I think. You get up in the morning, and what this text says is life begins to pass your view. It begins to come through your your experience. And each hour is an utterly unique, never-to-be-repeated, the Greek word is kairos, opportunity. You can either buy it for God, or you can miss the sale and have it never return again. Life is one opportunity after the other all day long. And I'm talking about little simple things like how you talk to people after the service. Whether you greet people or whether you miss the opportunity to greet people. Whether you say something encouraging at the dinner table today or say something discouraging at the table today. I'm talking about your whole life now. Opportunities come by you. You can buy them for God. Do you remember what Jesus said? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Have you ever asked where you're supposed to get the treasures to lay them up in heaven? What's he talking about? And then he told this parable. The kingdom of God is like a man who went on a long journey and he gave money to his stewards. A couple thousand here, five thousand here, ten thousand here. And he said to this person, now you use this money to invest and buy and deal. So that when I come back, you've got more to give me. Okay? Now, what does that mean? I think Paul is picking up on this very kind of analogy. He uses the word redeem or buy. And what we're supposed to buy is opportunities for God, for eternity. So what's the money you've got? It's the resources God's given you. It's your personality. It's your knowledge. It's your affections. It's your money. It's your time. It's your energy. It's everything about you is God's endowment to be used for buying up opportunities for God that you might then lay them up as treasures in heaven for your enjoyment forever and ever. There's another parable. You remember in Luke 16 where you're, used, you're supposed to use unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourselves in eternity. Well, here he says, buy up every opportunity for God. Don't let the sale go by without buying it. Now, the big question that we close with is, how do you do that? Practically speaking, how do you buy up opportunities when you're rubbing shoulders with unbelievers during the day? And and the text gives three really clear answers. I'll mention them. Wise behavior, salty speech, and individual attention. Wise behavior, salty speech, and individual attention. Let's just look at them briefly. Verse 5 Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. We must have wisdom. You know what wisdom is? I think wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. This is the rule book. It's a good rule book. It's the only way to get wise, too, by meditating on the rule book. But the rule book runs out. 
it does not tell you what to do in this situation. You face 10,000 situations in your life where this book doesn't give you a prescription. Well, how are you going to know what to do then? You You should have this book so soaking in your brain and the Holy Spirit so alive within that spiritual wisdom is upon you. And you know what to do in this unique situation. That's the way that you buy up a situation or an opportunity for God. Wisdom is knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. The second way to buy up opportunities for God is with salty speech. Verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, you know Jesus said you are the salt of the earth, right? You are the salt of the earth. And a lot of people argue back and forth, does that mean we are the preservative of the earth when there's no refrigeration? That we are the fertilizer of the earth because salt was a good fertilizer? Or that we are the the, the taste and the zing of the earth because uh, Christ is so exciting? Now, in this context, I feel real confident that he's talking about zing, seasoning. That is, what he's saying is, look, when you talk, when words come out of your mouth, especially words about God, Christ, the gospel, don't let them be bland, boring, insipid, unappetizing. Rather... Let them be zingy. Let them have taste. Let them be agreeable. Let them be appetizing. Let them cause thirst. Let them make mouths water for God. I think that's what he means. Now, I asked my sons and uh, Garnet Henry, who was eating breakfast with us this morning, uh, how do you do that? If I, They all agreed... That's what our speech should be like. It shouldn't be boring. It should be enticing. And I said, well, now, how do you get to talk like that? What has to happen? And uh, they said a few things, and Garnet nailed it right on the head. He said, you, you ha- you, your own mouth has to water for the gospel if you're going to get anybody else's mouth to water for the gospel. And that's what I wanted to say. This is why this text is so refreshing to me, because here is my number one prescription to you for how to be an effective shoulder rubber with unbelievers. Namely, be happy in God. You see, some of us have been Christians for so long that we're on automatic pilot. We get up in the morning and we don't we don't recharge any batteries. We don't get in the cockpit. We don't adjust any course. We don't sense that there is serious business at stake here about getting happy in God. We just don't automatic pilot. We've been Christians so long, we just get up and don't do any big sins. All of a sudden, into our life, a missile lands, blows the door wide off of an opportunity. There stands in front of us a soul Hungry for God, and we don't feel anything for God. And we fumble the ball. 
And there it goes, right off into history and eternity. The absolute number one prerequisite for being an effective personal witness is to get up in the morning, go to the Bible, and search for reasons to be happy that you're a Christian. Reasons to be excited that you know Jesus. Reasons to be thrilled that you're going to heaven. This morning, for example, I finished ten minutes early before breakfast, getting ready for my message, and I said, well, I'll just stay here and read straight through Colossians. Because I'm preaching on Colossians, maybe I'll bump into something helpful for the sermon, which I did. And I got to verse 5 of chapter 1, and it said, we have heard of your faith and your love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I just stopped and meditated for the rest of the time on my hope laid up for me in heaven. I thought about glory. I thought about Jesus. I thought about pain and grief and shame and sorrow and guilt and fear. Gone forever. I thought about my mom who's already there. I thought about sunshine because it was glorious at 445 this morning. You realize we only have about five hours of night these days? That the sun will rise every day in eternity. The sky will be blue. There will be big, beautiful white clouds. Breezes will blow. All the flowers will bloom. The trees will be green. Everything you love about this world will be there 10,000 fold. And I just thought about it and I said, I am so glad that I am saved. I am so glad that I'm going there. I am so glad that I'm not going to hell, that I will not be tormented forever outside the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that all my family, Lord willing, and all my friends will be here, and Jesus will be here, and God enthroned will be here, and all the good things of life will be manifold here. And I thought, if anybody crossed my path today, I'd have something to say. I'd have some zingy, zesty, Words about what it means to be a Christian. Now look, the greatest thing in the world is that to be effective for God, the number one task is to be happy. I mean, that's just the most refreshing news in the world. I just wish I could get everybody as excited about my Christian hedonism as I'm excited about Christian hedonism. That if you aren't happy in God, you will be ineffectual for God. I think that's implied in saying, let your speech be seasoned with salt. You can't do it if you don't taste it. And the last thing, just in passing, is everybody is an individual and you must treat them uniquely. Isn't that there in that last verse? Um, So that you may know how you ought to answer, literally in the Greek, not everyone, but each one. One, and the word is right there, each one. And the point is, there is no canned approach that will work with everyone. That's why wisdom is needed, salty speech is needed, and individual attention is needed. And so I just close by by pointing this out. Pick up the walkie-talkie. Call in the firepower for the stormtroopers and for yourself. When the door is blown off its hinges, have the gospel ready to be made plain and so savor it 
that when the opportunity comes, you can make it salty because here is an individual before you. Unique. Who will one day be an angel in heaven glorifying God with you or will one day be a devil in hell tormented by the evil one. I mean, there is no more thrilling way to live than to be alive to buying up every opportunity for eternity. Let's stand and pray together. Oh God in heaven, I long so much for myself and I grieve so much over my failure in this area. I long so much, oh God, to develop and keep a taste, a savoring, a delight, a glorying, an excitement with grace, with the gospel, with Jesus, with heaven, with glory, with being a Christian, with being saved. And I just plead with you, Father, that you would so come upon this group of people right now as I pray and through the rest of this day, that they would be thrilled that they are Christians. They would be thrilled that they're they're bound for glory. That they would be thrilled that Christ, the hope of glory, is dwelling within them. That they would be thrilled that they have a guide in this life and a reason to live. Oh, Father, so fill us with the salt, the taste of your truth that when the door opens this week, we'll be so eager and ready to say it that people's mouths will water. And I ask it in Jesus' name and all the people said, Amen.